The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Mr. President, by now you will know a nuclear device was detonated over the Soviet city of Donetsk. At that time, it appeared the missile was launched by NATO forces from Turkey, and our defensive system retaliated automatically. We now realize the first missile was launched by dissident members of our own military who feared our vastly improved relations and who conspired to overthrow this government and force war between our two countries. To be blunt, Mr. President, you now have three choices. Accept the damage and we will stop. Your second choice is to respond with a limited counterattack that inflicts on my nation a similar amount of damage. We will each lose between six and nine million people in such an attack. This is acceptable to us. And I know all too well the enormous military and political pressure you will be under to take your third option to respond massively. Scramble star, battery on. If this is your ultimate decision, I will have no choice but to reply with total nuclear commitment. We stop now. We lose. This president has a determination to wage a nuclear war until an acceptable outcome is achieved. Acceptable to whom, sir? Acceptable to me and the American people. Now, you put another bomber on the hen house fast. Did you get that? I hear you, sir. You don't sound convinced, General. I don't believe I am, sir. We can send the orders from here. I suggest you do that, sir. Am I hearing you correctly? I believe you did. General, you're fired. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 17, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be you're fired. If our opener sounded a bit like President Donald Trump with his finger on the nuclear button, that would be completely understandable, given the two broader themes we plan to discuss today, the continuing Trump phenomenon that we first discussed back on August 31st, and, uh, oh, by the way, did you hear that Donald Trump's being replaced on the Apprentice reality TV show by Arnold Schwarzenegger? Interesting. I don't think he'll be saying you're fired. I think he'll probably be saying you're terminated. <laughs> but who knows? And, of course, uh, this past Friday marked the 14th anniversary of 9-11, while today, September 17, marks the day that the nuclear arms agreement with Iran is being signed into being. And that deal is our planned focus for today's discussion with our in-studio guest, who I will introduce as soon as I first remind you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. And now, of course, our guest today is no stranger to this, to this show, as he has been a guest no less than 10 times previously between 2008 and this year. And um, that is 
Salim Mansour, Associate Professor of Political Science here at Western University. Good morning, Salim. How are you doing? Good morning, Bob. Nice to be here. It's, uh, you know, I have to say something before we even begin, because if I ever forget, you know, your appearance is on the show. You've been here basically once a year, maybe twice in the odd year since we started the show, and I have to say that your contributions to the show have been invaluable and have shaped a lot of the way, you know, both Robert and I will think of issues, and you've often... Uh, persuaded me to think in different ways and I came into the studio expecting to think and I think I have no idea what you're going to be coming up with today but I guess we wanted to talk about the um, oh before before we get underway you've been very busy over the summer lately too you've been uh, busy uh, you know as an activist you're also um, the vice president of uh, Muslims facing tomorrow and and your group ran this wonderful pull, full page ad in the um, National Post in, over the past summer was that something to do with the election? Is that why it was run, or would it have was it run? What was the thi thinking behind that? Y you ran, uh, you know, we are a Canadian Muslim voice that wishes to be heard. Well, the the, the election uh, was coming. Everybody yeah. knew that. The question was when will the writ be put into motion? Um, but the ad that you're referring to was not planned for the election. Mm. It was planned uh, to, as they had speak, to let the uh, Canadian public know that there are uh, a body of Muslim opinion, m Muslim activists, Muslim organizations that opposes uh, uh, the mainstream representation of Muslim to the mosque. Uh, and that is what we call the Islamist Muslim organization, mm. mosque-based, and you know, pushing for Sharia and 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 all that cultural artifact, the baggage that uh, immigrants bring with them. We we stand for Canadian values. We stand for liberal democracy. We stand for freedom. We stand for gender rights. Uh, these are the big issues that are being fought out in the Muslim world right now, uh, at this moment as we speak. Mm -hmm. And so the ad that we uh, came up with and we published uh, was to let Canadian public know that, you know, there is no one voice among Muslims in Canada. There are competing voices and different voices, and our voices need to be part of the uh, playing, you know, uh, in the public arena. Absolutely. Uh, of course, the whole that issue is behind what we're going to be discussing next, and that is the Iran deal. Correct. So I thought what we would do to introduce that subject and perhaps kick off with that is listen in for a couple of minutes to Brian Lilly's um, summary of of the uh, whole Iran deal as it was run on the Rebel this past uh, September second. So let's see what he has to say, and then we'll come in on the conversation immediately following that. There will be celebrations at the White House and among Obama supporters, but the fact that his deal with Iran over their nuclear program is now assured of proceeding, well, that should be worrisome to anyone who wants peace, anyone who fears you know, nuclear Iran, and anyone that supports Israel. Chris Coons, another de Democrat from Delaware, well, he gave an explanation for his support in a speech. I will support this agreement and vote against any measures to disapprove it in Congress. I will support this agreement because it puts us on a known path of limiting Iran's nuclear program for the next 15 years with the full support of the international community. The alternative to me is a scenario of uncertainty and likely isolation. Finally, I will support this agreement despite its flaws 
because it is the better strategy for the United States to lead a coalesced global community in containing the spread of nuclear weapons. Now make no mistake, these Democrats were subject to intensive lobbying efforts by the White House, and they're supporting it despite having real reservations. Republicans have been universally opposed to the deal, but they only have 54 members in the Senate. The Democrats have 44, and there's two independents, Angus Kane of Maine, Bernie Sanders of Vermont, both of whom actually Congress with or caucus with the Democrats. So Republicans knew they needed some Democrats to come out against the deal. Bob Menendez of New Jersey, he opposes the deal, and so does Chuck Schumer of New York. He's a powerful man in the Senate. Schumer rejected President Obama's claim that this was all about take this deal or war. Schumer said rejecting the deal did not need to lead to war and then explained why he couldn't support it. Quote, I believe Iran will not change and under this agreement it will be able to achieve its dual goals of eliminating sanctions while ultimately retaining its nuclear and non-nuclear power. That's a real fear right there. While John Kerry claims the deal will allow inspectors access to any site at any time, that simply isn't true. The deal allows Iran to stall inspectors for nearly a month before granting them access, and they can forbid them access to some sites. Iran's public claims on the deal are vastly different than what John Kerry puts out there. So let's look at the opposition. Like I said, the Republicans, including the presidential candidates, have hit hard against this deal, but few as hard as Ted Cruz, who says the lifting of sanctions and the release of previously frozen assets will enrich the regime in Tehran with billions upon billions of dollars. This is what Cruz has been saying about that portion of the deal time and again. Number one, if this deal goes through, over $100 billion will flow to Iran. They will pass it on to Hamas, to Hezbollah, to the Houthis. Without exaggeration, the Obama administration, President Obama and Hillary Clinton and John Kerry will become the leading global financiers of radical Islamic terrorism in the world. That money will be used to murder Americans, to murder Israelis, to murder Europeans. That makes no sense. Now there are some opposed to the deal, including some Republicans who say, well, Cruz shouldn't be saying things like that. Well, is it accurate? Without Obama, and the Obama administration, Iran would not get that money. And even John Kerry admitted in congressional testimony that the money very well might be used to fund terrorism, as Iran has been doing for years. No deal, no money. No push from Obama, no deal to make Iran rich again. The Saudis don't trust this deal. They're now expected to begin a mini arms race to get their own nuclear bomb as an insurance against Iran, an arms race in the Middle East, Israel under even greater threat. That's the result of this deal. President Obama has said that it was this deal or war. I say there's a very good argument that this deal may lead to war rather than prevent one. I am in studio with Salim Mansour. And Salim, after having heard that, any comments? Would you agree with Brian there, or is he a little off the mark there? Well, I mean, look, um, let's talk about this. I mean, it, 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 there's a whole lot of problem uh, with, with this Iran deal. Uh, and and people have come up and spoken about it, and and some of that I will point out. Uh, we can list a number of factors, but but the th the thing that is uppermost in the mind of many many people is how do you explain the United States president signing a deal 
with a regime, an Iranian regime, that has been basically at war with the United States, with the West. It, it has been, it held American hostages, it has been killing Americans, uh, it has openly declared that it will try to, you know, annihilate, ex exterminate Israel, so on. Uh, how does the United States president, in this president, sitting president, President Obama, engages in signing a deal with a regime that will give that regime uh, a huge amount of money that's cash inflow, $100 billion with the sanction being lifted, or estimate up to $150 billion, now, and now will push Iran in the direction of getting nuclear weapons. That is the most troubling aspect. We can get into the details. It's, it is, and but uh, now some people have led us to believe that the U.S. is actually giving Iran money. That's not what's happening, is it? That you're, you're saying the money that they're talking about Iran getting is coming from the lifting of the sanctions that are currently on the country. Correct. Trade sanctions. Correct. And so by opening trade, they will have uh, more of their natural economy coming back into the country. Correct. The sanction will lift, money will flow, but there's also uh, funds that are being held, uh, Iranian funds that are being held in escrow since 1979. So, you know, I've, I've heard rumors that, uh, rumors, <laughs> reports that Iran is not doing well economically, of course, because of the situation, and that this deal was very desperate for them to, to have in many ways. And your question is good. Why, why, why is the U.S. doing well, this? Well, this is what baffles everyone. I mean, what is the explanation? It doesn't seem there to be any rational or credible explanation except the, for the fact that Obama uh, is, head, uh, is, is trying to get a legacy deal, that he's the man who made an agreement with this regime, uh, just as uh, in some sense uh, President Nixon uh, went to China in 1972 after uh, uh, the communist China uh, was kept out of the UN. There was no relationship with the United States after Mao and the communists won victory in 1949. But the two are completely, in, you cannot compare the two, it's apples and oranges, but possibly that's, that's part of the explanation. And, and uh, the other explanation is that, you know, it is again part of um, the disengagement taking place under the Obama regime from the Middle East. Disengagement? In Disengagement. Yeah. I mean, I mean uh, Obama regime had been withdrawing mm -hmm. from the Middle East, and uh, um, the, the crisis that we are watching right now unfolding with this, the humanitarian crisis with the Syrian refugee and so on uh, begins with when Obama pulled out precipitately from Iraq uh, in 2009. Right. Well, I would think that the fear now is of course, the whole nuclear question. Exactly, and I think, let's, I mean, uh, for your audience and, and for all of us, I mean, let's look at some of the issues uh, on the table and why uh, this de deal is so vehemently opposed. I mean, in fact, the, the uh, polling data that has come out, I mean, today they're supposed to be signing the deal or, 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 the, or this Congress will be voting Actually, there is hardly any vote taking place. Uh, kind of a done deal. Yeah, it's a done deal. Uh, but the date was today, the, the, the 60 days clause. But uh, the, the public opinion poll, Pew, Pew Research did it, uh, came out this week. Uh, the, the only 21% of people approve of this deal, 21% of Americans. That's only one in five Americans approve of the deal. 49% um, disapprove of it, uh, you know. So it's 
the deal, the opposition is running two to one against the deal. Uh, of course, the Republicans oppose it. Uh, this issue has become a main issue in, and will be a main issue in the 2016 election campaign. It's already an issue. But the specific, let me, from our perspective, from my perspective, uh, what I want to bring to your attention and mm -hmm. to the attention of your audience is what does this deal mean both in terms of the politics of the region the middle east uh, what this deal mean in terms of the non nuclear non-proliferation treaty of 1968 to which iran was a signatory and how this deal has basically led to what i see that you will be discussing is what you're calling the trump phenomena that is the complete alienation with at least on the conservative side, the Republican side, voting population with the uh, establishment politician, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, it doesn't matter. The complete disgust in American politics right now with Washington, what the, this deal represents. So let's begin uh, one, I mean, I mean with mm -hmm. uh, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, this was the treaty that was negotiated and put together by the United States and uh, by the other great power, the Soviet Union, and members of the United Nations, the Security Council, and passed in, 19, uh, in 1968. The basic, the heart of the treaty is that nuclear power would be accessible to the signatories to the duty under the supervision, the verification, and the compliance agreement of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Association, which is the arm of the United Nations. Um, and so if countries want to engage in acquiring nuclear power uh, for domestic purposes, that's quote-unquote peaceful purposes, Atom for Peace, that was the slogan mm -hmm. of uh, Eisenhower in the 1950s, which was translated into this treaty, the countries can do that, provided they are signatory to the NPT, uh, and and countries that are nuclear power will help them in that getting that peaceful uh, atom for peace uh, technology <coughs> to these countries under the supervision of the IAEA. Plus the fact that by signing the non nuclear non-proliferation treaty, the countries were saying that they are not going to go into anything to do with the military purpose that is getting nuclear right. weapons. There were a few holdout countries, principally countries like uh, India, Pakistan, not Korea now, which is a nuclear power, Israel. So there were a few countries that were not signatory to the deal, but it was pretty much almost all the countries around the world had signed it. Right. And this deal, the very important point is, this n nuclear non-proliferation treaty uh, was ratified by the U.S. Congress in accordance with the U.S. Constitution. So it is a treaty that stands as a law in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Constitution. Um, now, no... You're, you're talking about the non-proliferation no, non-proliferation yeah, okay. treaty, yeah. Not the deal they just made, no. No, no, no. So, so no, no U.S. president, and which is what Obama has done, by an executive order unilaterally, can subvert or get away from this deal. 
But Obama has done an end run onto this nuclear non-proliferation treaty. And by doing that, he has subverted one of the most important arms control treaty in the international arena. Iran is a signatory to it. And now Iran has gotten away with this deal to pursue its nuclear objective. It has gotten away by lifting the sanctions. And with the side deals that we do not know about because these have not been presented to the U.S. Congress. Yeah, that's what worries me. Yeah. Iran, and what we understand, has a special agreement with IAEA that the verification and compliance that the IAEA will sign on to will only be done with the way that Iran wants to do it. That is, 24 days advance warning to Iran that they're coming for, uh, um, you know, um, looking at what Iran is yeah. doing, the inspection, the verification, the compliance, which basically means, you know, that Iran is on the driver's seat. That That's, that's a huge change that has taken place and what it does it releases the demon of nuclear proliferation in the middle east because it's now set the precedent that the united nation will make a special deal this is the p5 plus one that is the five security council member right. plus germany right. will can make a separate and individual agreement that may go outside the npt with other players, other countries that might want or insist the way Iran has been treated, they should be treated. The exemption of Iran under the NPT makes it possible that, say, the Saudis, the Egyptians, the Turks, they want, without any sanction of the uh, NPT right. through IAEA being imposed because when Pakistan and India went to get the nuclear weapon they were non-signatories but they were sanctioned but they were breaking the NPT agreement which they had not signed on to so they were rogue states in that sense mm. in the case of Iran it has signed on uh, signed on to the NPT and it has not you know unsigned itself from it so that's a huge problem few people are looking into well it kind of means that it almost it doesn't matter what kind of deal you sign with anybody it just doesn't hold any water in the future if you don't stick to the previous deals it's kind of like setting a precedent isn't it yeah, ab uh, absolutely i mean then you know who do we trust in this matter uh, and especially a rogue regime a regime like iran that is basically a prison for its own people and its own population that has been engaged in terrorist activity around the Middle East and beyond. The long arm of Iran has reached, you know, all the way to the Western Hemisphere and South America, in Venezuela, in Argentina. And what it does is now, if Iran breaks out, uh, the president says, you know, this deal of war, the question is, this deal has efficacy only up to 10, 10 years. What happens after if Iran breaks out, like Pakistan, that's a shield for Iran to carry on, to pursue its uh, subversive activity, to support terrorist groups in the Middle East and beyond. I mean, we know that Iran finances Hamas and Hezbollah. Then in Iran is basically supporting Assad regime in Syria that is 
making war upon its own population. Well, given the country's in such supposedly terrible economic shape, where do they get all the money to support all these activities without somebody's help? Well, it 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 it, it is a, in a poor economic state because of the recent dip in the oil price. You know, yeah, and that, that's a very substantive dip that has taken place. I mean, over the past fall to now, from somewhere over a hundred dollar a barrel, the oil has collapsed to f- around forty dollars a mm-hmm. barrel. It in, in fact went under. So that is hurting Iran very badly. Apart from the sanctions that were hurting Iran, but Iran's economy is basically oil economy, and Iran can keep its population under pressure because it is not responsible to it. I mean, it is a regime. It's like a communist regime. It is a dictatorship. It's a tyranny. It's not responsive to its population. So it doesn't care. The regime has its own interests, and the regime will follow that interest. Now, I was listening to um, author Elan Berman, who wrote a book called Iran's Deadly Ambition. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I heard Andrew Lawton discussing the issue with him yesterday, and he was suggesting that, um, I guess there's a lot of people that believe that this deal somehow closes the path to Iran's getting a nuclear weapon because of the the, the procedure that they want to go through, these inspection p- procedures. But he brought up a very disturbing alternative. Uh, the issue is not necessarily that they have to build one. He said, you can buy one. And what would stop any nation from buying a weapon, particularly from another quote-unquote rogue nation that has these weapons on hand and and are willing to sell them, to say nothing of the unknown black market that it seems to be developing in nuclear weaponry? Um, Do you smell trouble? Do you you see a nuclear something happening in the next 10 or 20 years? I mean, can we say it's almost inevitable, or is it still something unimaginable? Nobody could have said that, you know, uh, 12 people, 19 people would hijack number of planes and, and fly them into tall buildings, you know. If anybody had said that on September 10, 19, you know, what was it, 2001, they would have been told that you're crazy. Uh, so we have seen crazy things happen. W- what we do know is a regime like Iran will not hesitate. It is for pursuit of its own interests to threaten its neighbors, its enemies with nuclear yeah. weapons. Everybody that is what North, North Korea is trying to do. North Korea is very clear about it. It keeps raising it. People might say it's so a mad regime, but it keep, keeps saying Does that. Iran actually have any intentions or even indication at all that any of this nuclear power would be used for non-weapon um, uses, for actual domestic energy? Is there, Are they actually putting anything into that, is, or well, is that just a cover? Or <laughs> a, a lot of the argument uh, uh, about Iran's nuclear interest was, you know, why does Iran need it in the first place? It's an energy-rich country. So what is this purpose for? Well, I mean, uh, a sovereign country has a right uh, under, you know, what was the Atom for Peace program and then, you know, with with the coming of the non-nuclear proliferation treaty, have the right to build up a, a... nuclear research and 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 infrastructure and industry for civilian users uh, that that right is there that's recognized uh but to shift from that to weapon system which say the pakistanis have done which india did um is a bridge that is not too far anymore and it can be crossed mm-hmm. and a regime like north korea that starves its people 
has nuclear weapons. Just think about that, you know. Yeah, uh, well, that's Pakistan. often, maybe that's cause and consequence right there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of being a mystery. So, so, the f- so the danger is that if there is a war, and, they, and this, regi- this area, we have seen wars. I mean, India, Pakistan have fought four wars. If they fight another war, if it breaks out, it can very quickly escalate to the nuclear level. Mm-hmm. In the case of Iran, Iran has been talking openly that it wants to annihilate Israel, that there will be no Israel. The day the deal was technically signed, the Grand Ayatollah Khamenei was saying, you know, we will basically destroy Iran. So here we have a country, its leadership, its people, who says that this is what they intend to do, how do we sit back and say, you know, those are simply talk, so much of talk. Mm. You know, we cannot go by their intention. We'll have to go, as Obama is saying, we have to go by what they actually do. We're going to verify it. We're going to inspect them. We're going to trust them, so on and so forth. But when we look at it, for instance, look at this. It is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. It's not even a treaty. It's not even an agreement. So it is a sort of an intent. We expect you to do X, Y, and Z. And you, that is Iran, says, yeah, we we will do X, Y, and Z. Or we may think about doing X, Y, and Z. But there's nothing binding about it. The binding thing is the NPT. And now that has been loosened over here because what is the side deal with IAEA? Now, if you flip it over and you come to the question about why did Obama sign something called a comprehensive plan of action rather than an agreement or a treaty, it was to end run the Congress. And that's what he did. Yes. He took this matter to the UN. Yeah, and he got the UN Security Council to pass a resolution, 2231, which lifts all of six or seven UN resolution under Chapter 7 that puts the sanction in place, that puts the Iran regime on notice. And, and, and Obama's plan of action lifts all of us that, all of it out. The UN Security Council Resolution 2231 has now basically lifted everything out. Well, so, you know, it's a, it's a terrible situation. We're at the bottom of the hour now, and of course I'm very curious at your uh, assertion here that perhaps some of this reaction, the public reaction to this issue is what's creating the Trump phenomenon, which is something that we'll be segueing into next. And uh, so we'll be doing that now, and when we return, we'll be talking about Donald Trump and all the related issues involving um, what's happening south of the border. We'll be back. Ah, the Republicans are tearing their hair out. Uh, First, (laughs) well, this week, first off, looks like the Iran deal, Obama's Iran deal, is going to go through. So, so, uh, roughly, Iran deal, gay marriage, Obamacare confirmed by the Supreme Court, and now doctors say the Trump that has been growing inside them is inoperable.
NBC said today that it was cutting ties with uh, Donald Trump, uh, which is similar to what Univision said last week because of the comments he made about Mexicans during his uh, presidential kickoff speech. So I've been very, very strong on immigration. Thank you. You're right. But I've been very strong on immigration, and we have to be. And I've taken a lot of heat, and it's unnecessary, very unfair heat, because, first of all, I love the Mexican people. I have a great relationship with Mexico. How can I not love people that give me tens of millions of dollars for apartments? You have to love them. But I love them for a lot of reasons. I love them for their spirit. But at the same time, we have to have borders. And this isn't for Mexico, this is for the world. We have to have borders. If we don't have borders, we're essentially not a country. And that's what's happening. We're in studio with Salim Mansour, and that was uh, Donald Trump speaking back in June, when of course he got in all that trouble, uh, speaking about Mexicans and Mexico, Mexicans coming north of the border, and of course immigration is a huge issue um, that seems to be both uh, driving the Trump phenomenon and its opposition at the same time. What's your take on the whole Trump issue? Because I was very surprised. We talked about this before, and um, you didn't seem to be as negatively disposed to Trump as I might have expected you to be, and I think you were surprised at my surprise, and maybe that's why we're talking about <laughs> this right now. Um, did I read you right, or is, is there something else going on there? Well, as a student of politics, uh, you know, one wants to understand what is this phenomena? Why is all of a sudden? Maybe it's not well, all. Why of a is it a phenomenon? Is, is, is why isn't it just normal politics as usual? What is it about Trump that makes him a phenomenon, and the rest of them just normal politicians? I think that's that's the question. Maybe. Um, yeah, you know, uh, it could be. But here it is. I mean, uh, the amount of oxygen that he Trump <laughs> has sucked out of what are the uh, other candidates, that are the, the politicians, uh, senators, governors, people who have been in politics all their life, that is the professional politician, the establishment. He sucked out the um, oxygen and he has been riding, riding high. But he's not only riding high. If you put Trump along with Ben Carson and Carly Fiorina, the three of them are in the in the polling numbers are in excess of 50% and then you have the rest of the field the rest of the 15 or 16 that's right so this is a phenomena you know and and it's a phenomena that that is being sustained and it is going on uh, with all what would you call gaff or what would you would call theatrics and 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 uh, uh, entertainment and acting but nothing touches trump at least it hasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a phenomenon, you know. And and people are now getting the sense of it that he has the staying power and that he might go all the way to the end of the primary, you know. And if that happens, this was never seen that a Trump would emerge as a possible Republican nominee for the 2016 election. So it is truly a phenomenon. And, and one needs to sit back and try to understand it and explain it. And I think that was part of what you and I were talking about the other day. You, you know, when, when I look at Donald Trump, there are things I might say I like about him. I like his bombasticness in a sense because it draws attention to the issues. There's a lot of things about his, his stands I don't like. But you know, 
either way, I, I still find it difficult to trust him. There's something about him. Well, look, <laughs> l- 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 let's take a, a, a step back. You talk okay. about trust, have you mm-hmm. know? It's not you or me. We are looking at it. You know, first of all, we are Canadians, and we're looking well, no, at no, this. Understood. So we are looking outside. We are we are outsiders. We are looking at the American public and where the American public is, and particularly this is a, a Republican primary going on the GOP, where the 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 uh, Republican primary voters are on this case, so the trust. Uh, part of the phenomena, I think a great part of it is that there is no trust for the elected politicians. So let's swing back a little to this whole Iran deal. The American Constitution is very clear that the president and his team negotiates treaties with other powers. That's their executive authority. They manage the foreign policy. But then they have to submit whatever they agree upon, their agreements. So Nixon uh, uh, during the SALT negotiation, the arms control with with the Soviet Union, Jimmy Carter, SALT negotiation too, so on and so forth. There's a whole lot of examples that we can pull off. They do the negotiation, but they come back home and they have to submit it to the U.S. Senate. And the rules are very simple. If the president and his team cannot muster two-thirds of the vote in the Senate, the agreement dies. Mm-hmm. What did the Congress do this time? That is, the Republican Congress do that time? They turned the, tr- the constitutional principle on his head with the Corker Bill, who is a Republican senator from Tennessee, that it is not that the president have to get 67 votes in the Senate, it is the senators must get 67 no vote to deny the president. Ah. Okay, so what happens if you just think about it? In a normal constitutional process, which every president has gone through, that they, they want the deal to be accepted. Remember, it was Wilson who could not get his deal that was the League of Nations accepted. That was torpedoed by the U.S. Senate. The president has to get 67 yes vote. Under the Corker bill, what happened was the president only has to get 35 yes vote. So guess what? The 35 yes vote were the Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> so geez, I wonder <laughs> if they plan that legislation for the way the House was already right. laid out. So here you, have, here you have a situation, the travesty of which was that the Republican senators helped Obama get the Iran deal, which is not a treaty, but they didn't block it. They didn't do what the public elected them to do. So now, again, you step back. In 2010, the American public, that is the Republican voters, the conservative voters, gave the House back to the Republicans. In 2014, they gave the Senate back. And what are the Republicans doing? They can't manage anything. So there is no trust. That's what is steaming the Trump phenomena. Is that because the Republicans themselves aren't very united amongst themselves even? And it almost sounds like you're describing um, a breakdown of the rule of law within the within the government governance. W- w- whether the Republicans are united or not is immaterial. There are maybe 
a Tea Party supporter, a Republican, that is Ted Cruz, or maybe Marco Rubio, or Rand Paul, and then there are others, but they are all inside the Senate, they have been elected as Republicans. So whatever the differences are as Republicans should be set aside when they're confronting the Democrats. That's why they were elected. Otherwise, the American public would have sent Democrats into the, Repu right. into the House and the Senate. So they're looking at this matter and saying, what the heck is happening? You know, we stand up, we support, we raise the money, we bring the vote. And then they go in there and they surrender. They surrender to, in this case, Obama. So the perception out there, which has become very real, it, it doesn't matter. There, whether you're a Democrat or whether you're a Republican, you are part of the establishment. So the Trump phenomena is the anti-politics politician running. In the case, <laughs> Trump is not a politician, he's a businessman. Carly Fiorina is a CEO, right. or was a CEO of uh, uh, HP, and, and Ben Carson is a pediatric neurosurgeon. And they, three of them, have got more than 50% of people supporting them. So this is the anti-politics politics. Let me say one more point. Okay. People say, well, what are their policies? Well, what are they speaking about? And so on and so forth. Well, Trump has raised the issue of immigration and he's hogging that and he's put that very sharply, you know, right. and, and, and he has we'll be hearing about that in yeah, a lighted the thing. But the point that I want to make is there's enough policy on the table. People have talked policy to death. In 2010 and in 2014, Republicans were elected that they would undo the Obamacare. They would, you know, stand up sure. to Obama. They would not allow executive authority to be passed on, so on and so forth, on the immigration side. So policies are coming out of nose, ears, and whatever. So this election, people are saying, we don't give a hoot about politics. We want to see who is the guy who can stand up. So this election is about, or the, or, or the Trump phenomena is about attitude. You know, do you have the spine? Are you going to take on the establishment? And I think that's going a long ways. Well, you, you've brought up a great uh, point to bring us to our next clip here, because certainly if the Republicans themselves were, were, were worried about Trump, certainly the Democrats are now, too, and the other side. You know, I've often enjo enjoyed and agreed with Bill Maher's views, for example, on the Islamist issue and on the feminist issues. But I wasn't too pleased with his approach on the issue of Donald Trump, even though I tended to agree with his take on immigration from Mexico to some degree. In the following August 28th conversation from his show, among the voices we'll hear are those of Republican Senator Dana Rohrbacher, Washington Post correspondent Robert Costa, and of course Bill Maher himself, uh, disappointingly and shamefully playing the race card, I think, against the Trump card. But it's very indicative of the fear that I think Trump is beginning to engender on the left. Let's, let's listen into that one. But it's so interesting that, you know, Europe has a really nasty immigration problem yes. that can be violent. We have just friendly people south of our border who want to come here and exploit us by picking our fruit. And, <laughs> and the racism out of the Trump camp is getting really kind of nasty. Uh, get out of my country, is what his bodyguard said to Jorge Ramos. Uh, Trump said, go back to Univision. He said the man was very emotional. Donald Trump was in Alabama last week. Here's what one of his supporters said after the rally. He said, hopefully if Trump's elected president, 
He'll make the border a vacation spot. It's going to cost you $25 for a permit, and then you get $50 for every confirmed kill. I was there. You were there for that rally. I yeah. was there with the covering Trump in Alabama. The, the most fascinating thing about that crowd, a lot of white working class people, a lot of white collar people from all around Alabama, the Florida panhandle, insurance salesmen, teachers, they're clicking with Trump. Can you get away with talking about black people like this in America at this point? I don't think no. so. You can I, kick Mexicans no. still, but but this is about... This is pretty. This is pretty out there, and you know, uh, if if I was if that was my party, uh, you know, I'd be a little ashamed. I think you're absolutely right. I, uh, have, uh... They, the Republican side especially is great at fantasy issues. Oh, well, the truth is that net immigration from Mexico has been zero for the last seven or eight years. Well, that's, what, that's what your experts can tell you. The bottom line is it's not just Mexico that we're talking about. This isn't a Mexican issue. This is an okay. issue about the massive flow of illegals that I just bid down the wages of our people consume education uh, and health care benefits get that rid of all belong of to the American people. Somebody's got a champion. Can I just vent for one impact. second about the media on Donald Trump? Because they keep complaining that, well, he's at the top of the polls. We have to cover him. Maybe he's at the top of the polls because you cover him endlessly. Exactly. And then he goes to China. They've taken our money and our jobs. It's one of the greatest thefts in the history of the world. That's the way Hitler used to talk about the Jews. Okay, they didn't steal anything. We gave them our jobs. Rich people like that sent them overseas on purpose. You keep saying, you know, everyone says the media should cover less Trump. I entirely disagree. Trump needs more coverage. He's the front runner in the Republican Party. Look into his business dealings. How did he make the real estate money? What's his political path? I don't hear any of that. Well, we're looking into it at the Post. I know other newspapers are. I mean, the, the level of coverage is maybe saturated. But Trump, he's the front runner in the Republican Party. And if he wins that those Deep South primaries in early March, he could well be the nominee. Deserves more coverage. As a Democrat, I say That's, keep it up. Yeah. Keep it up. Keep it up. That's yeah, be careful what you wish for, because <laughs> I think he might get in there if he keeps it up. You know, I thought that was getting pretty low of Bill Maher there, picking on the race card and comparing him to Hitler and things like that. That, that to me, is a sign that Trump's doing really well. <laughs> Any thoughts on what you just heard or on the whole? Well, uh, we've only got about five or ten minutes left. <laughs> on on the larger yeah. uh, issue, wh whatever uh, that clip that you were playing mm -hmm. uh, goes uh, to suggest, the larger issue is that Trump is now the symbol, the sign of the most politically incorrect person that has the support of the people. People have been suffocating with political correctness. Obama is not going to talk about uh, radical Islam or Islamism. Um, they're not going to talk about illegal immigrants. They talk, call them, as Mark Stein has said, uh, what is it, undocumented uh, people. Yeah. Um, so euphemism, political correctness, uh, you know, on, on any number of issues. And Donald Trump has simply run a battleship through them, or whatever metaphor you want to use, a tank through it, uh, through political correctness. And the people are saying, good, finally, 
we have a man who speaks as he sees things. He calls a spade a spade. This whole argument that he's now unleashed, it might have to go all the way to the Supreme Court, but the argument about anchor babies, that, you know, illegal immigrants, they come in, they have a baby, and suddenly, as Trump says, we have to now take care of this baby for the next 90 years. You know, that is, this baby becomes a citizen, he's a citizen simply by mm -hmm. being born in America and becomes the anchor for the whole family to be coming well, in. Well, immigration has always been a problem for those countries that are more, shall we say, um, welfare state-oriented and less of a problem. Well, welfare state orientation is a, is a, is, is a post-1945 phenomenon. Right. Yes, it makes it very, very different from what was immigration into, say, the Northern Hemisphere uh, before, 19, before 1939. So, yes, there, that is a problem. But what, what has happened is, is, and is happening is Trump is challenging all the shibboleths of the mainstream and the establishment people, you know. Uh, and one of the big problem has been that uh, particularly a, a white guy, a white woman, don't want to talk about issues. They say in Canadian politics right now, this whole, the, 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 the courts have come down, have, have thrown out this burqa or face covering mm -hmm. issue uh, with, with, with the woman who challenged it uh, uh, for citizenship oath taking. And we cannot discuss it. Because, you know, the politicians who want to discuss it, they're being hammered by saying that this is uh, uh, bigoted, you know, that this is somehow against, uh, in this case, Muslim women or in, in, in America against Hispanics or what have you. But Trump is saying, no, look, Trump is saying, as I understand him, a country must have border. A country is sovereign. It must have its own authority to say who can come in and who will cannot come in. It must be able to establish its own laws. The fact there is illegal immigration means that our laws are being broken on a daily basis and we must go back and reassert our laws. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people are supporting him for that. In fact, you know, as you can see, on the GOP side, he has walked away with, with, with the support which is now well up in the 40 and 50 percent, whereas Jeb Bush and all are struggling on this issue. They want to be nice, they want to be polite, they don't want to be, they want to be politically correct, and they are in single digit. You know, I found his comment on the border kind of compelling because I think there's a border and then there's a barrier. Yeah. Two different things. And, and, and barriers are designed to keep people out, whereas borders just exist to define a jurisdiction of, of, of a given government. So people could be free to cross a border between two jurisdictions, and that would not interfere with the jurisdiction's uh, ability to carry out its own laws and, and things of that nature. I'm concerned in some respects that Trump seems, and maybe I'm seeing it wrong, he sounds a little anti-free trade, and he sounds like he would... Um, isolate the U.S. a little bit more, and, and uh, I don't know that that would be a good thing for any of the countries in the world. Am I reading him wrong on that? Well, I mean, there is a, uh, a segment of the U.S. electorate 
that is very skeptical about free trade, and Trump is playing to that uh, very strongly. Well, uh, of course, and that concerns and me. And I would and think and as and a Republican sure, he would be going sure, the other there, way. <laughs> there, there needs to be some concern about that. But coming back to borders, Trump is not saying that the world's longest undefended border needs to have a wall built on it. Uh, well, it that's just how the enemy is, is, <laughs> is picturing it, <laughs> so of course. So it comes back to, you know, if your borders are not going to be patrolled, I mean, our border, the, U, the 49th parallel, you know, is not an open sea when Canadians are not fleeing into the United States. And, and that's not a problem. But the Rio Grande, the border to the south between the United States and Mexico, has become an open sea. Uh, and people don't even know exactly what is the number of illegal uh, immigrants in the United well, States. Well, I got that from the, from the discussion they had because there was totally no agreement on how many Mexicans were coming over the border, how many were there. Bill it, Maher was saying there's been no net increase. Exactly. Others were saying it, it's, exactly. it's, it's so just... It is, so it how, do you, how, do you, how can you even, how can you even decide an issue if you don't even have the facts? You know, it's, it's all, it all comes down to... Uh, some sort of ideology well, the facts in, in are isolation. There. The, gov the government, the enforcement agencies, ICE, the Immigration and Custom uh, Enforcement Agency, all of them do have facts that, you know, there are undocumented people uh, in the United States. What the numbers are may be open to dispute, but it is not that open to dispute that there are undocumented, in million undocumented, people who have overstayed the visa requirement, who came into the United States on visitor's visa or what have you, student's visa, worker's visa, and they have overstayed, apart from those who are crossing the southern border. What Trump is saying, we will no longer be a country if we cannot enforce our borders. I mean, you talk about borders. That, that, that I can relate so, to. Yeah. That I can relate to. And, and, and apart from that, the, the issue of border and, and controlling the border, that is controlling the traffic of people, the other issue that Trump is talking about, you know, which got him Trump into uh, a, a fit with uh, a, a giving a jab to Bush, to Jeb, is about language. I mean, Trump was saying, why are you speaking Spanish uh, to the question that you're being asked? Well, this is, again, a very old issue. It's not simply Trump, you know. Uh, I remember st studying Senator Hayakawa. I remember him. He was a Japanese-American who wrote a book about this matter. It goes back to 1970, right. that America is an English-speaking country, and you've got to learn English. America insists upon in assimilation. You come from whatever point in the world you want to come from, but it's only in America where you can have a Bobby Jindal running for presidency, <laughs> you know, of, of Indian parents, or you can have uh, uh, Marco Rubio of Cuban parents, or, you know... Well, Salim, I can't believe it. The hour has gone. Um, uh, there are so many other questions I wanted to ask you yet. I guess we're going to have to have you back again and continue this conversation. For now, we have to leave, and that's it for today. Uh, as you all know, join us again next week on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I always have fun in the Middle East. I always have a good time. Why, my white friends, have you gone to the Middle East at all? No, you should go check it out. You go to the Middle East, very friendly people. I always have fun with the Arabs. They're, 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 all, they're actually very nice. They're, they're rich as shit. The ones I've seen, and you know what I'm talking about, Saudi guy. He, he's like, I know I'm very rich, it's okay, but...
And like Arab rich, brown guy. Arab rich, very different than anybody else's rich. I, I may be considered American rich. That's cute to Arabs. Like uh, American rich, I have $10 million. Arab rich, I don't know which pants I put the $10 million in. I don't. Oh, there, maybe in the wash I'll find it one day. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, let's be honest. You go to the Middle East, Indians are the Mexicans of the Middle East. That's what we are. We, we build everything for them over there. All those fancy buildings they have, we built. And I don't know what part of India they went to to find these Indians, but I have never seen them before. I've been to India, north, south, east, west, the whole place, and I never saw these Indians. They bought an entire race of Indians that doesn't exist in India anymore.